Good morning. Welcome to South Bay Community Church. Like Pastor Gary said, my name is Greg. I am one of, one of the pastors here. I'm uh, the teaching pastor here, and they only call me that because I'm not a senior citizen like that guy. Um, but I, I'm excited to teach the Word. As Pastor Gary mentioned, we are in a new series called Faith in Action. So if, if you are new here this morning, you, ca- you came on a good week as we're starting off a, a, a fresh series that probably will lead us into December, going into Christmas. And we pray that you would actually come back and, and go through this journey with us as we go through James. I, I, I know that a lot of you guys are on tablets and phones. I'm an old-fashioned guy, so I, I actually like to have the physical uh, Word of God in my hands. And so I want to encourage you guys for this study. It would be great to bring your Bible if you have one. You don't have to. But what's cool about it is when we put up the verses for you on the screen, a lot of times they're in bits and chunks. Uh, but... Sometimes it's good just to see the entire context in which it's found and just be able to underline and, and circle and, and uh, highlight. So that's something you might want to do. Uh, I want to pray and spend some time in prayer with you before we open God's word and ask that his spirit would lead us into this truth. So would you guys join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, I thank you so much for this day that you've made, God. And I thank you that you've, by your grace, you've opened up our eyes this morning. You've allowed our hearts to continue to beat. And Lord, we pray, like the Bible says, that we would use every breath to praise you. So Lord, I pray that, that as we go into your word, that it would be full of praise, that this would be worship, that we would see you for who you are and see that you are worth everything in us, Lord. And I, I pray that, God, you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, we're not really interested in the opinions of a man on the stage. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your spirit. We want to know your heart and your character and what you have to say to us today. So, Lord, our heart and our minds are turned to you right now. And if they're not, we ask that you would turn them to you right now. God, I pray that as, as I communicate the word that nothing I say today would be successful. I pray that nothing I say would be uh, shared or, or remembered unless it's true and unless it's straight from your heart, breathed by your spirit. So God, we, we pray for that kind of success. We wanna, we wanna know that you spoke to us today and our lives are gonna be changed because of it. So we give this time to you, surrender to you, and it's in Jesus' name we all say, amen, amen. So as a means of introduction, I want to kind of set up the context for you as to why the book of James was written, who wrote it, and who is it written to. And so in our context, right, when you write an email, you write a letter, we, we always start off with who we're writing to, right? Dear Mark. And then sometimes Mark wouldn't even know who wrote it until he gets to the end of the letter or the email when it says, sincerely, Greg. Well, in the ancient times, especially in the Bible, whenever epistles or letters were written, it always started with who it was written by, so there's no confusion about it, and then who he was writing it to. So who wrote the book of James? It starts off like this in verse 1. If you have your um, program as you watch, walked in, we call it the Baywatch. You can open that up, or we have the SBCC app that you can download. But here's what James 1, verse 1 says. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who it's by, to who? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So you can stop right there. So, so there were a lot of James in, in the Bible, right? We learned of a few 
um, just by reading the New Testament. And I'm sure there's a lot of James back in that day. But this James, it's widely to be, be believed that it's the half-brother of Jesus. So this guy grew up with Jesus. And interestingly, the half-brother of Jesus didn't even believe Jesus was the Son of God. He had his doubts until he saw his brother come back from the dead. And after the resurrection, that did something in James's heart. He actually became a leader of the church as it was first born. When it started, he became a leader there in Jerusalem. And then it says that, that this James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And who, who, who are the 12 tribes? Well, we know the 12 tribes in the Bible refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's writing to the Jews, but not just to any Jews. We know that they're Christian Jews. Jews that believe in Jesus. How do we know that? Well, because Christian Jews were the ones who were in the dispersion. In the NIV version, it says, to the Jews scattered among the nations. Well, let, me, let me try to explain what happened to you, uh, what happened there to you. So you guys remember when Jesus died and he resurrected and he, and he came and he appeared to all these people. Remember what he said in Acts 1.8? This was like the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. Like, this is powerful. Pay attention because these are the last words Jesus said before he went back to the throne of God. He says this in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's what he says. He says, you are going to receive power. My Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem where you are, but also in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Boom, he drops the mic, and then, oh, he ascends back into heaven. Right? Ultimate mic drop. And then later on as we go through Acts, Acts chapter 7, that's exactly what happens. The disciples and apostles are sharing the gospel, being witnesses in Jerusalem. One guy in particular, Stephen, we learned about him a few weeks ago, He's so good at what he's doing. He's making converts that they don't like it. The, the Jewish leaders persecute him. They pull him out and they stone him to death. That's Acts chapter 7. And then now that he's been martyred, all of a sudden this great persecution breaks out. And here's what it says in the next verse. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says this. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem... And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You here in Jerusalem will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then by Acts 8, 1, what happens? They're in Jerusalem. There's a great persecution. They get scattered to where? Judea and Samaria, and as we learn as Acts goes on, to the ends of the earth. How did Jesus know this? He called it, did he not? You would think he's like God or something. How does he know this stuff? Right, and, and so, so we see in this Bible that people are getting spread out. Witnesses are now going out to different regions. But the reality is, as these Jewish Christians are being spread out to these, these foreign lands that they didn't grow up in, no doubt they're going to face trials of all kinds. Right, they're, they're going to face discrimination, maybe death threats, maybe unemployment, ridicule. And so James, as, as their leader when they were in Jerusalem, wants to write to them to encourage them. 
in the face of trial, and he wants to give them instruction on how to now live out your faith. Now that we're not in the safety of our, of our, our, of our city and you guys are out there on your own, let me encourage you and show you how to live out real, genuine faith. This is the time when our faith needs to be put into action. This is where the rubber meets the road. And so, so what does he say to them? How do you go through trials? When the world opposes you and, and, and tests your faith, what should you do? So he goes on, verse 2. Well, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You can pause right there. So the first instruction that James gives to the Jews, these Christians who have been spread out, he says, consider it joy. Would you write that down in your notes if you're following along? Consider it joy. So there's no doubt in my mind, like I said, they're going to face all sorts of tests against their faith. They're going to be ridiculed, discriminated, death threats, unemployment. And that, that would be my guess. The Bible didn't say that very clearly, but that would be my guess. But even if that were not the case, everyone who lives in this world will have to endure some measure of trial simply because you live in this world. That if you live in this world, by, by default, everything around us, nature on the outside of us, human nature on the inside of us has experienced the effects of the fall right, the, the curse of sin that we learned about, learned about way back in Genesis chapter 3 when sin was introduced into the world. All creation, including creatures like you and, and me, we will experience the negative impact of sin on this world. So every trial, every test, every temptation, every tear, every tension, every tsunami, right, like, like Indonesia experienced this past week that's taken at least 1,400 lives, Every earthquake, like Japan experienced just a few weeks back, every hurt, every evil, every disease can be traced back to Genesis 3, the fall, when sin entered into the world. The probability is that as you're sitting here this morning and you're sitting in your seats, that you're experiencing some measure of trial. And when I say that, some of you guys already know what I'm talking about because it's a major crisis in your life. Maybe you're in a relationship that's headed towards separation, and that's killing you. Maybe your health or the health of someone you know is failing and is spiraling downhill pretty quick. Maybe you've been battling depression or anxiety, and you know what your crisis is. You know what your trial is right now. It's major. And then there's some of you who are being tried, and you're being tested, but it's minor, so minor that you don't even realize it until you stop and think about it. Because maybe you wanted to scream as your child spilled milk again on the way to church this morning. Or maybe you're annoyed by someone you have to constantly see time and time again. Maybe they're here today at church. Your, your, your test might be something. Maybe you're jealous because you saw an Instagram post that someone else posted of their glamorous life. And all these things test our faith. They, they will try us. And James acknowledges that, that we will face trials of various kinds, some major, some minor, some external, some internal. But we're going to face trials of various kinds. And, and these trials, they try us. 
they test us. And what it's going to do, essentially, it's going to either expose fake faith or it's going to reveal genuine faith. And if your faith is genuine, church, friends, if your faith is genuine, then consider it pure joy when you face these trials of various kinds. Now, with that being said, I know that verse has been widely memorized. You might have it on your wall or you might sign your emails with it. But let's be real, like how many of us truly experience joy or consider joy when you go through a trial? Like, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you guys, when you, when you go through that trial, it's like, you're like, hallelujah. Like, oh, praise God. I love when my heart gets shattered into a thousand pieces. Like, I love when I get betrayed and my heart's broken and all the, I, it just makes a beautiful mosaic right here, right? None of us, how many of us, oh man, love it. Love it when I get laid off again. The first two times was, was hard, but the third time, oh, there's a charm. I love it. And no one's rejoicing over their trials. So is it realistic to consider our trials something to be joyful about? I, I want to say I, I, don't, I don't think so. But if you look carefully at the text, I, I don't know if, if, if James is telling us to consider our trials joyful. What I think he is saying is you're not supposed to find joy in the trials, but find joy in the result of the trials. You don't need to find joy in the pain of the process, but find joy in the product of that process. Because look what James 2 says. Let's look at it carefully. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, comma, doesn't stop there, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Circle that word. The NIV uses the word perseverance. That's what we take joy in. So you don't need to take joy in your sickness, but take joy in the steadfastness that's produced by that sickness. You don't have to take joy in the persecution, but take joy in the perseverance that comes from that persecution. Because that steadfastness and that perseverance that's being developed in you, it's doing something. It's bringing you somewhere. And he says when it has its full effect, it's bringing you to completion. It's bringing you to perfection to the point where one day you are going to lack nothing. Why? Because you will be made perfect in the image of Jesus Christ. See, God is doing something in us. There's this process, and we call it sanctification. But all that is to say that God is bringing us through life, bringing us through this world, and he wants to perfect us and complete us and make us look like Jesus in every way, in the way we think, in the way we act, in our character, in the way we talk. He wants us to lack nothing to the point where when I'm naturally feeling wrath, I begin to show mercy. When I want to scream my head off, I'm showing self-controlled gentleness. When I want to give that person the finger and point them the finger, I'm actually starting to point them to South Bay Community Church because they need Jesus just like me, right? And all of a sudden, there's this change in us, and he wants to mature us. He wants to complete us and perfect us. So consider this joy. When you go through trials of many kinds, because he's refining you to look like his son. You guys might have already known this, but, but the process of refining gold, when, when they take a, uh, an ore of gold, a, a nugget of gold with all its imperfections and impurities and other metals, they'll put it through the fire. 
right? And the goldsmith will just go through this process where he'll turn up the heat. Gold starts melting at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it takes a lot to melt gold, but, but he's going to put it through the fire, and he's going to go through this process, and that whole process is meant to burn away and melt away all the impurities and all the other metals until finally that piece of gold is nothing but pure gold. Until everything, the dross has been stripped away and melted away, and it's only pure gold. And so that trial that you're going through is like fire to your faith. It's like fire to your faith, and that trial that you're going through, whether it's a, a tragedy in your life, the death of a loved one, or that situation on the road this morning, that trial is like a fire that the devil would like to see destroy your faith. But if your faith is like gold, if it's genuine, then that fire is only going to expose your faith, and it's only going to reveal your faith, and it's only going to reveal Christ in you. And it's going to develop more and more of him in your life. One day you will be perfect and complete. You're not going to lack anything. You're going to be Christ-like to the core. And that is the product that we should be joyful about. That's what we take joy in. Now, here's the thing. I realize it's so easy for me on the outside of your trial to say, hey, church, take joy. Consider joy when you go through trials of many kinds. It's so easy to say that and quote the scriptures when you're not the one in the midst of that trial, right? I recently picked up mountain biking again. I, I, I tried 15 years ago. This is right when I graduated from college and I was living in Irvine and I knew that Irvine had these trails behind my school. And so, so I picked up mountain biking then. I tried it and, and I remember the first time I tried to take my bike out for a ride, there was this street I had to park on and then I had to ride up the street, concrete street, just to get to the trailhead. So I'm not even on the trail yet. And I'm, I'm running up the street. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. My, I mean, my legs are tender and fresh. I've never done this before. And I'm going up the street, and with every ounce of energy and muscle and strength in me, I'm trying to make it up this hill. And for you, those of you guys who, who, who cycle and you ride bikes, you know that one of the greatest risks is getting hit by a car, right? You know that, right? Well, I didn't know that. So I'm, I'm like going up this hill. This is an upward battle. And I, I'm, I kid you not, I have my head down. And no joke, my eyes are closed because I'm riding like this. And I'm squinting my eyes. And I, I got my head down and trying to muscle up this hill. When all of a sudden, bam! I didn't get hit by a car. A car got hit by me. I ran into a parked truck. And so, like, I'm right, it's so embarrassing because I'm going full force, and there's this truck that I didn't see, and boom, I hit it, my back tire flies up, I fly off my bike, and people were walking by. People were like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing, that guy just hit a truck. <laughs> guy just hit a truck, and he's on the street, and they keep walking, all right? But here's the thing, when you are in your, your struggle, when you're in your trial, it's so common for us to be so fixed on this that we see nothing else. Like, we don't see what's around us. We're, we're, we're just fixed on trying to get through this, and I get it. So it's, it's easy to say, consider it pure joy when you're not the one in the midst of the trial. So how do we find joy? Praise God that, that James doesn't stop there. He goes on because he gives us instruction on how to think right when things go wrong, how to find joy when we're in the midst of the trial. He goes on, write this down, ask for wisdom. Don't just consider it joy, but ask for wisdom. 
So verse five, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You could pause right there. Ask for wisdom. You know, my, my wife Monica, when she was giving birth to our first child, Evan, the first time, she, you know, she, she went into that labor knowing that labor is excruciatingly painful. Amen, moms? It's excruciatingly painful. She knew that. There's going to be pain involved. But after she gave birth to Evan and he came into this world, she was like, that was amazing. And she literally said, I want to do it again. I want to go through it again. Why? Why was she so amazed by that whole experience? Well, because she was amazed at the power of the epidural. <laughs> she was amazed at how effective the epidural was. She's like, I didn't feel a thing. That was awesome. Let's do it again just so I could get the epidural shot. And she became like an epidural evangelist. And if you don't know what an epidural is, that's that, that shot, that, that anesthesia they give you that relieves all the pain. She's like, I can't wait till I do it again because I want the epidural. And so when she gave birth to our second child, Karis, she knew that labor is still painful, excruciatingly painful. And, and it's still nerve-wracking. And she went into that delivery room. And, and you know what she didn't ask for? She didn't ask that, that the doctor would release her and let her go home. She didn't ask to escape the delivery. What did she ask? She said, doctor, give me the epidural. Give it to me now, right? Like she wanted the epidural now, and, and, and she got the epidural. Why? Because she knew that it wasn't about me being removed from this process, but, but keep me in the process. Just give me the epidural that will help me make it through the process so that I can experience the joy that's going to come out of this. So Christians, when you go through your trial, wisdom is your epidural. See, because there's something better to ask for when you're going through your trial than to, to, to ask for deliverance from this. There's something better to ask for, and it's not necessarily, God, take me out of this trial or take this trial away from me. There's something better to ask, and I think James would say, ask for wisdom. Because remember, these trials are refining you. They're the instruments that God is using to chisel you and to shape you and to mold you and to refine you to be pure in your faith. To make you more like Christ. So you don't want to necessarily get out of the trial. But is there something that, that God can give you to help make it through the trial so that you can experience the joy? Absolutely. It's called wisdom. I, I love this definition of wisdom that I heard in college. And I've always held on to this. But, but I was told that wisdom can be seen as this. It's, it's seeing things the way God sees things. Wisdom is being able to see the way God sees, to see the world the way God sees the world, and then to live accordingly. Tim Keller said this. I'm going to put up a quote for you. He, he's a pastor and author. But he said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. Isn't that true? Like, yeah, I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like what he's allowing to happen to me. But if we knew what God knew... Bring it on. We'd welcome what he gives because we, we know that he's a good God and he's doing something good in this. 
reality is I don't know if we could ever know fully everything God knows. Isaiah 55 makes it very clear that his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. He's omniscient, we're not. And yet, at the same time, I, I think it's possible to, to ask God to help us see and have a perspective that's like his. In other words, I, I think we could ask for wisdom through trials to see that God sees something, that this is going to end up good because you're going to be made more mature, more complete, more perfect, and more like Christ. And if I could have the perspective to, to be able to pick my eyes up off of this struggle and be able to see that something's going on in the bigger picture, then, then maybe, maybe I can find some joy in this. Verse 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, he, he's not, he ain't mad at you for asking for wisdom. He's not going to be like, what? You, you want to see like me? Is that pride? You're trying to be like God? No, he's not going to accuse you or blame you for asking for wisdom. There's no reproach. No questions asked. You want wisdom? He will give it to you generously. You want wisdom? I'll give you wisdom. Thank you for asking. If you don't have wisdom, if you don't have joy, maybe you have not because you ask not. That's something James is going to say later in this book. You have not because you ask not. So ask. And one thing you could ask for is for wisdom. You have his word. He's going to give it to you. No questions asked. And I believe you'll find joy in the midst of your trial when God's able to lift your head up and help you to see through wisdom that there's a good ending to the story because that's what he sees. Consider it joy when you face trials. Ask for wisdom. Number three, he says, look to the future. Look to the future. There's joy in that too, because verse nine goes on to say this. Let the lowly brother, the humble brother, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Circle that phrase, the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You can pause right there. And so for these scattered Jews, these, these newfound Christians, their, their main trials, I believe, are going to be persecution and poverty. Right, persecution because they believe in Jesus, which a lot of these Jews didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but they did. And then poverty, and that makes sense. And, and, and James addresses poverty a lot in this book. But it makes sense because if you're picking up and fleeing for your life, you're leaving a lot behind. You leave your property, you leave your work, your family trade, and you're now in a foreign land where you don't just go around and apply for employment. These people are probably trying to figure out, how am I going to live? How am I going to eat? How am I going to survive? And so a lot of these were, were found in these low circumstances, these humble circumstances, materially, probably financially, physically. And sometimes for us in here, sometimes our trials are very similar, and they revolve around humble circumstances. 
Maybe it's for you. Maybe it is financial and material. Maybe it's social. Maybe it's positional. And you find yourself in this place where you feel like you're at the bottom of the bottom. You're at the lowest of lows. So maybe the test to your faith is relative poverty in some way. And your struggle is, do I trust God? Or maybe the test of your faith is jealousy because you can't help but to look up at everybody else and what they got going on for them. How is it that they have so much more than me? Or maybe your struggle, the test of your faith is pride because I think I deserve a lot more than this. I deserve a lot more than this. And so it revolves around humble circumstances. And oftentimes, the, the turmoil we experience in our humble circumstances isn't just the fact that we're in a humble circumstance. But while we're there, if it's not bad enough, we're looking around at what everybody else has. I mean, seriously, take away social media, take away YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and put blinders on us. And a lot of the turmoil we experience wouldn't even be there. I was watching the Lakers this week. I was watching LeBron in his yellow Lakers jersey. And as I was watching him play and I looked at the bench, I, I, I had a thought. I wonder how many people on that bench look at LeBron and his $35 million a year paycheck and wonder why they're only making $1.5 million a year, right? Like some people, like he's making like 20, 30 times more than them. I mean, how many people would like to make $1.5 million a year, amen? Give it, to, I'll take it. I ain't grumbling. But yet when you see somebody else with like 20, 30 times more than you, I don't know what kind of thoughts that stirs in a person. Maybe thoughts of insecurity. Maybe thoughts of inadequacy. I just don't match up. I, I don't get recognized. I can never be like that. Jealousy, envy, I, I don't know. But I know when we look at everybody else around us and compare ourselves to them, it, it, it can sometimes do serious damage in our hearts. I, I came from a church my previous church, I mean, everybody was super smart. So like right out of high school, you're already applying for either Ivy League schools or, or UC schools, right? It, it, like we had students from our youth group go to Harvard and Yale and MIT and Carnegie Mellon and, and all these East Coast Ivy League schools. And if, if they didn't want to go out of state and stay, they wanted to stay home, it, it was at minimum UC, right? UCLA, UCLA, UC Berkeley or UCI. Right? which we all know is, stands for UC Ivy League, right? And so, so they would apply for these schools. And, and I remember having conversations with two different college students in my college group who were grieving the fact that even though they went to a really good four-year university, it wasn't an Ivy League or it wasn't a UC, so they felt discriminated. They felt looked down upon. They looked like they were treated. They felt like they were being treated differently because they weren't like everybody else. And in my mind, I'm like, that's an amazing school you go to. And I don't think that's really what's going on, but there's that feeling of comparison, and I just don't match up, and it's killing me. And James in this book would say, don't look at what the other person's got. Look to the future and what your faith gets you in the future. And this is something his brother Jesus taught. Jesus taught that in the future, if your faith is genuine, the last will be first. The lowest on earth will be exalted. Those who are poor now will be extremely rich later. For yours is the crown of life. So don't look to everybody else. Look to the future and what your faith promises you. 
You could be caught in the struggle and you could be looking down and failing to realize that God is doing something in you. Or you could be in the struggle and looking around at everybody else around you at what they've got, failing to realize that you have the crown of life waiting for you. And if the king of kings says he's giving you a crown, that's no measly crown. That's something to look forward to. The reality is we can look at people around us and all these people we see and compare ourselves to trust in material things. And those who trust in the things of this world now, some, some people even giving up their souls for the things of this world now. They may ha- have it all now, but they will lose it all later, guaranteed. They're not bringing any of this stuff with them to heaven. And unfortunately, some will even lose their souls along with it. I'm, I'm just going to be real with you guys right now. This is a harsh reality, but I'm just going to say it. Because there's a lot of us in this room. If I, if, I, if I ask the question, how many of you guys trust in Jesus? Hands would go up. Probably the majority of our hands would say, yeah, I trust in Jesus. My faith is in God. And some of you guys in this room, some professed Christians would say, yeah, I, I trust in God and money. I trust in God and, and my job security. Yeah, my faith, my faith is in God and my abilities. I love God and my health. And there's other things that we're putting our, our dependence on and our faith in. And, and, and we will only know when the rubber meets the road and our, test, our, our, our faith is tested and trials come our way. Because when trials come and the fire comes, what remains? The reality is at any moment, a, a natural disaster can strike and wipe out all our possessions. Some Indonesians unfortunately experienced that this past week, just like that. We can learn of a, a disease tomorrow and, and find out that my health is being stripped away. I can get into an accident right after this message and all of my abilities would be stripped away. I could learn tomorrow morning, Monday morning, that our company's having a company-wide layoff and all of a sudden my job security is burnt up. And when that fire comes and, and, and your faith is tested, my question is, what remains? In your life, what remains? Because faith like gold, genuine faith, will always remain through the fire, even when all these things, like grass and like the flowers of the field, are wiped away and stripped away. Those other pursuits, James says, like grass, they will burn up. When the sun scorches, it's gone. And some who have put trust in those things, pursue those things, will fade away just like those things. But those whose trust is truly in Christ and Christ alone. Even if you get to enjoy these things, if your faith is in Christ and Christ alone, your faith will remain even when those things fade away. And for those who have faith like gold, look to the future. Because the low will be exalted, and yours is a crown of life. Verse 12 says, blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So church, look to the future. 
Don't look down when you're in this struggle. Ask God to lift up your eyes and give you wisdom to see that he's perfecting you and completing you. And don't look around when you're in your struggle at what everybody else has. Fix your eyes on, on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the future and the crown of life that awaits for you. The low will be exalted. Finally, James would say to us, remember our Father. Consider it joy. Ask for wisdom. Look to the future but remember our Father. Verse 13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is leered and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You can pause right there. And so finally, as you're going through your trials of various kinds, remember our Father. Remember who He is, that He is a good Father. He is a good Father. As, as a toddler, my son Evan, he's eight now, but when he was like two or three, he discovered this amazing thing uh, called M&Ms. And, and, and he fell in love at first by, and like he loved M&Ms. And we realized, man, he's only two or he's only three. We can't be feeding him M&Ms like he'll get addicted to the stuff. And we've seen the effect that M&Ms has on him. He gets hyper and, and crazy. So we're like, we're like, we can't do this. And so Monica, my wife, she laid, she laid down her foot. She laid the law down. She said, Evan, no more M&Ms. And not just this day, just no more M&Ms for you, okay? No more. Well, one Saturday morning, uh, Monica was out. She was doing her thing, so I had daddy duty that Saturday morning. Guess what this amazing dad does? It was 8.30 a.m. in the morning. They hadn't had breakfast yet. They're starving. So I reach into our pantry, and I grab this big jar of M&Ms. I go, Evan, are you hungry? You want some M&Ms? And he lit up. He had this big smile on his face. And then all of a sudden, he heard mom talking to him. And this is what happened. True story. Check this out. No. Come on, why? No what? No more. Mommy said no more? No. Come on. No. <laughs> all right. What? <laughs> what a good kid. What a bad daddy, right? Like... What, what kind of dad, what kind of father tempts his kid with evil? What kind of parent does that? Don't judge me. You guys do it too. How many of us often wonder, how good is my kid? And, and we wonder if they have it in them. If I, if I would just put them to the test, if I would just try them, how would my kid respond? And we just want to know. Parents want to know. Not our father. Not our Father, for he does not tempt with evil. God doesn't get a kick sitting in heaven, dangling evil in front of his children just to see if we would be loyal to him. He's not going to put the world in front of you just to see if you would obey him. He's not going to put you through the fire just to prove your loyalty. God does not tempt with evil, not, not our Father. The Bible says in, in verse 13, when he uses the word tempted, James uses this Greek word. That's the language he wrote it in. He uses the word pirazzo for tempted. And that's the same word he used for trials in verse 2. When you face 
pirazzo, trials of all kinds. So trials and temptation are the same word. And just like trials are not from God but can be traced back to the fall, temptation is not from God and can be traced back to the fall. And so when you're being tempted and tried and tested, don't blame God. Don't don't shake your hand at God as if he's doing this to you. Remember, your father is a good father, and he's not bringing this on you. But he wants to bring you through this. And as a good father, he wants to get you out of this. And he wants you to get something out of this. Maturity, completion, perfection, Christ-likeness to the core. He wants to get you out of this even if he allows you to go through this. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The NIV will tell you, he does not change like the shifting shadows. And so here we come full circle. We started this passage by saying all trials, all temptations, all tests, everything negative and evil in this world can be traced back to Genesis 3, the fall, and the effects of the curse of sin. And yet we finish on this note. Every good and every perfect gift can be traced back to one single source, not the fall, but the Father. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Every victory, every healing, every saved soul, every restored relationship, every ounce of joy, every good and perfect gift comes from not the fall, but the Father, the Father of lights. It doesn't change like the shifting shadows. That's who he is. You know, when I was in high school, I used to run with a bunch of foolish kids, and, and, and we, we, we had this fascination of... Um, checking out all these urban legends that would float around our school. And so we would hear about this lighthouse in Palos Verdes that's haunted, and so we would go check out the lighthouse that night. And then we would hear about this mysterious mansion in Portuguese Bend, and so we would drive to Portuguese Bend at night. And so we were trying to find the next cheap thrill. Then we heard a new one. We heard that if you go to Malaga Cove, there in that old plaza, they, they say if you go at midnight, and you have to go at midnight, They said, you'll see an image of the devil looming over that old plaza. And we're like, let's go check it out, right? And so at 12 midnight, we all jumped in the car, and we drove to Malaga Cove, 12 midnight, and we pull up. No one is there. It's totally deserted and empty. We pull up, and we saw the image. And I have to tell you, it was so lame. It was lame. All it was, it was nothing more than the shadow of the statue in the middle of the plaza, right? And, and when, when you look at it, this is Neptune, the sea god, and, 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 and he's, it's just a statue. And, and during the day, all throughout the day, its shadow changes. At 12, 12 in the afternoon, it's, you know, his, his shadow's minimum. But then as the afternoon progresses, then his shadow starts to elongate and it gets narrow. And then at night, it just disappears. Only to reappear again because the fountain lights turn on. And when the fountain lights turn on, they actually shine on on him and they project the shadow onto the, the, the back wall over there. And you see him standing there. But because of the angle of the lighting, it looks like he has two horns. It's just a trident that he's holding behind his head. 
It's so lame. And by the way, let me just say, we were foolish in high school. I want to say to you guys, a lot of these urban legends and, and, and things of the darkness, they're fake. And I, I would warn you against these unhealthy fascinations with, with the dark realm, because even though some of them are fake, I think the devil wants to use that as, as an opportunity to get a foothold in your life and to, and, and to bring demonic influence into your life. So I would say to stay away from unhealthy fascinations with the dark realm, but... But this was, this was lame.